Welcome back for another installment of The Three-Body Problem by Cixin Liu. Twenty-seven. Evans. Half a year after her return to Tsinghua, Ya took on an important task, the design of a large radio astronomy observatory. She and the task force traveled around the country to find the best site for the observatory. The initial considerations were purely technical. Unlike traditional astronomy, radio astronomy didn't have as many demands on atmospheric quality, but required minimal electromagnetic interference. They traveled to many places and finally picked a place with the cleanest electromagnetic environment, a remote hilly area in the northwest. The Loess Hills here had little vegetation cover. Rifts from erosion made the slopes look like old faces full of wrinkles. After selecting a few possible sites, the task force stayed for a brief rest at a village where most of the inhabitants still lived in traditional cave dwellings. The village's production team leader recognized Ye as an educated person and asked her whether she knew how to speak a foreign language. She asked him which foreign language, and he said he didn't know. However, if she did know a foreign tongue, he would send someone up the hill to call down Bethune, because the production team needed to discuss something with him. Bethune? Yeah, was amazed. We don't know the foreigner's real name, so we just call him that. Is he a doctor? No, he's planting trees up in the hills. Has been at it for almost three years. Planting trees? What for? He says it's for the birds, a kind of bird that he says is almost extinct. Yeah and her colleagues were curious and asked the production team leader to bring them for a visit. They followed a trail until they were on top of a small hillock. The team leader showed them a place among the barren Loess Hills. Yeah felt it brighten before her eyes. There was a slope covered by green forests, as though an old yellowing canvas had been accidentally blessed with a splash of green paint. Yeah and the others soon saw the foreigner. Other than his blonde hair and green eyes and tattered jeans and a jacket that reminded her of a cowboy, he didn't look too different from the local peasants who had labored all their lives. Even his skin had the same dark hue from the sun as the locals. He didn't show much interest in the visitors. He introduced himself as Mike Evans without mentioning his nationality, but his English was clearly American-accented. He lived in a simple two-room adobe hut, which was filled with tools for planting trees. Hoes, shovels, saws for pruning tree branches, and so on, all of which were locally made and crude. The dust that permeated the Northwest lay in a thin layer over his simple and rough-hewn bed and kitchen implements. A pile of books, most of which dealt with biology, sat on his bed. Yeah noticed a copy of Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. The only sign of modernity was a small radio set hooked up to an external D battery. There was also an old telescope. Evans apologized for not being able to offer them anything to drink. He hadn't had coffee for a while. There was water, but he only had one cup. May we ask what you're really doing here? One of Yeh's colleagues asked. I want to save lives. Save, save the locals? It's true that the ecological conditions here... Why are you all like this? 
Evans suddenly became furious. Why does one have to save people to be considered a hero? Why is saving other species considered insignificant? Who gave humans such high honors? No, humans do not need saving. They're already living much better than they deserve. We heard that you're trying to save a type of bird? Yes, a swallow. It's a subspecies of the northwestern brown swallow. The Latin name is very long, so I won't bore you with it. Every spring, they follow ancient, established migratory paths to return from the south. They nest only here. But as the forest disappears year after year, they can no longer find the trees in which to build their nests. When I discovered them, the species had less than 10,000 individuals left. If the trend continues, within five years, it'll be extinct. The trees I've planted now provide a habitat for some of them, and the population is rising again. I must plant more trees and expand this Eden. Evans allowed Yan and the others to look through his telescope. With his help, they finally saw a few tiny black birds darting through the trees. Not very pretty, are they? Of course, they're not as crowd-pleasing as giant pandas. Every day on this planet, some species that doesn't draw the attention of humans goes extinct. Did you plant all of these trees by yourself? Most of them. Initially, I hired some locals to help, but soon I ran out of money. Saplings and irrigation all cost a lot. But you know something? My father's a billionaire. He's the president of an international oil company, but he'll not give me any more funding. And I don't want to use his money anymore. Now that Evans had opened up, he seemed to want to pour his heart out. When I was 12, a 30,000-ton oil tanker from my father's company ran aground along the Atlantic coast. More than 20,000 tons of crude oil spilled into the ocean. At the time, my family was staying at a coastal vacation home, not too far from the site of the accident. After my father heard the news, the first thing he thought of was how to avoid responsibility and minimize damage to the company. That afternoon, I went to see the hellish coast. The sea was black, and the waves under the sticky, thick film of oil were smooth and weak. The beach was also covered by a black layer of crude oil. Some volunteers and I searched for birds on the beach that were still alive. They struggled in the sticky oil, looking like black statues made out of asphalt, only their eyes proving that they were still alive. Those eyes staring out of the oil still haunt my dreams to this day. We soaked those birds in detergent, trying to get rid of the oil stuck to their bodies. But it was extremely difficult. Crude oil was infused into their feathers, and if you brushed a little too hard, the feathers would come off with the oil. By that evening, most of the birds had died. As I sat on the black beach, exhausted and covered in oil, I stared at the sun setting over a black sea and felt like it was the end of the world. My father came up behind me without my noticing. He asked me if I still remembered the small dinosaur skeleton. Of course I remembered. The nearly complete skeleton had been discovered during oil exploration. My father spent a large sum to buy it and installed it on the grounds of my grandfather's mansion. My father then said, Mike, I've told you how dinosaurs went extinct. An asteroid crashed into the earth. The world first became a sea of fire and then sank into a prolonged period of darkness and coldness. One night, you woke from a nightmare, saying that you had dreamt that you were back in that terrifying age. Let me tell you now what I wanted to tell you that night. 
If you really lived during the Cretaceous period, you'd be fortunate. The period we live in now is far more frightening. Right now, species on Earth are going extinct far faster than during the late Cretaceous. Now is truly the age of mass extinctions. So, my child, what you're seeing is nothing. This is only an insignificant episode in a much vaster process. We can have no seabirds, but we can't be without oil. Can you imagine life without oil? Your last birthday, I gave you that lovely Ferrari and promised you that you could drive it after you turned 15. But without oil, it would be a pile of junk metal and you'd never drive it. Right now, if you want to visit your grandfather, you can get there on my personal jet and cross the ocean in a dozen hours or so. But without oil, you'd have to tumble in a sailboat for more than a month. These are the rules of the game of civilization. The first priority is to guarantee the existence of the human race and their comfortable life. Everything else is secondary. My father placed a great deal of hope in me, but in the end, I didn't turn out the way he wanted. In the days after that, the eyes of those drowned birds always followed me and determined my life. When I was 13, my father asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. I said I wanted to save lives. My dream wasn't that great. I only wanted to save a species near extinction. It could be a bird that wasn't very pretty, a drab butterfly, or a beetle that no one would even notice. Later, I studied biology and became a specialist on birds and insects. The way I see it, my ideal is worthy. Saving a species of bird or insect is no different from saving humankind. All lives are equal, is the basic tenet of pan-species communism. What? Yeah, wasn't sure she had heard the last term correctly. Pan-species communism. It's an ideology I invented. Or, Or maybe you can call it a faith. Its core belief is that all species on Earth are created equal. That is an impractical ideal. Our crops are also living species. If humans are to survive, that kind of equality is impossible. Slave owners must also have thought that about their slaves in the distant past. And don't forget technology. There will be a day when humanity can manufacture food. We should lay down the ideological and theoretical foundation long before that. Indeed, pan-species communism is a natural continuation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The French Revolution was 200 years ago, and we haven't even taken a step beyond that. From this, we can see the hypocrisy and selfishness of the human race. How long do you intend to stay here? I don't know. I'm prepared to devote my life to the task. The feeling is beautiful. Of course, I don't expect you to understand. Evan seemed to lose interest. He said that he had to go back to work, so we picked up a shovel and a saw and then left. When he said goodbye, he glanced at Yeah again, as though there was something unusual about her. On the way back, one of Yaz's colleagues recited from Chairman Mao's essay, Remembering Bethune. Noble-minded and pure, a man of moral integrity and above vulgar interests, he sighed. Well, there really are people who can live like that. Others also expressed their admiration and conflicted feelings. Yaz seemed to be speaking to herself as she said, If there were more men like him, even just a few more, 
things would have turned out differently. Of course, no one understood what she really meant. The task force leader turned their conversation back to their work. I think this site isn't going to work. Our superiors won't approve it. Why not? Of the four possible sites, this has the best electromagnetic environment. What about the human environment? Comrades, don't just focus on the technical side. Look at how poor this place is. The poorer a village, the craftier the people. Do you understand? If the observatory were located here, there would be trouble between the scientists and the locals. I can imagine the peasants thinking of the astronomy complex as a juicy piece of meat that they can take bites from. This site was indeed not approved, and the reason was just what the task force leader had said. Three years passed without Ye hearing anything more about Evans. But one spring day, Ye received a postcard from Evans with only a single line. Come here. Tell me how to go on. Ye rode the train for a day and a night and then switched to a bus for many hours until she arrived at the village nestled in the remote hills of the northwest. As soon as she climbed onto that small hillock, she saw the forest again. Because the trees had grown, it now seemed far denser. But Ye noticed that the forest had once been much bigger. Newer parts that had grown in the past few years had already been cut. The logging was in full swing. In every direction, trees were falling. The entire forest seemed like a mulberry leaf being devoured by silkworms on all sides. At the current rate, it would disappear soon. The workers doing the logging came from two nearby villages. Using axes and saws, they cut down those barely grown trees one by one and then dragged them off the hill using tractors and ox carts. There were many loggers, and fights frequently erupted among them. The fall of each small tree didn't make much sound, and there was no loud buzzing from chainsaws, but the almost familiar scene made Yaz's chest tighten. Someone called out to her, that production team leader, now the village chief. He recognized Yaz. When she asked him why they were cutting down the forest, he said, This forest isn't protected by law. How can that be? The forestry law has just been promulgated. But whoever gave Bethune permission to plant trees here? A foreigner coming here to plant trees without approval would not be protected by any law. You can't think that way. He was planting on the barren hills and didn't take up any arable land. Also, back when he started, you didn't object. That's true. The county actually gave him an award for planting the trees. The villagers originally planned to cut down the forest in a few more years. It's best to wait until the pig is fat before slaughtering it, am I right? But those people from Nanga village can't wait any longer, and if my village doesn't join in, we won't get any. You must stop immediately. I will go to the government to report this. There's no need. The village chief lit a cigarette and pointed to a truck loading the cut trees in the distance. See that? That's from the deputy secretary of the county forestry bureau. And there are also people here from the town police department. They've carried off more trees than anyone else. I told you, these trees have no status and aren't protected. You'll never find anyone who cares. Also, comrade, aren't you a college professor? What does this have to do with you? 
The adobe hut looked the same, but Evans wasn't inside. Yeah found him in the woods, holding an axe and carefully pruning a tree. He had obviously been at it for a while, his posture full of exhaustion. I don't care if this is meaningless. I can't stop. If I stop, I'll fall apart. Evans cut down a crooked branch with a practiced swing. Let's go together to the county government. If they won't do anything, we'll go up to the provincial government. Someone will stop them. Yeah looked at Evans with concern. Evans stopped and stared at Yeah in surprise. Light from the setting sun slanted through the trees and made his eyes sparkle. Yeah, do you really think I'm doing this because of this forest? He laughed and shook his head, then dropped the axe. He sat down, his back against a tree. If I want to stop them, it'd be easy. I just returned from America. My father died two months ago and I inherited most of his money. My brother and sister only got five million each. This wasn't what I expected at all. Maybe in his heart he still respected me, or maybe he respected my ideals. Not including fixed assets, do you know how much money I have at my disposal? About $4.5 billion. I could easily ask them to stop and get them to plant more trees. I could make all the lowest hills within sight be covered by quick-growth forest. But what would be the point? Everything you see before you is the result of poverty. But how are things any better in the wealthy countries? They protect their own environments, but then shift the heavily polluting industries to the poorer nations. You probably know that the American government just refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol. The entire human race is the same. As long as civilization continues to develop, the swallows I want to save and all the other swallows will go extinct. It's just a matter of time. Yeah sat silently, gazing at the rays of light cast among the trees by the setting sun, listening to the noise from the loggers. Her thoughts returned to twenty years ago, to the forests of the greater Kingon Mountains, where she had once had a similar conversation with another man. Do you know why I came here? Evans continued. The seeds of pan-species communism had sprouted long ago in the ancient East, you're thinking of Buddhism? Yes. The focus of Christianity is man. Even though all the species were placed into Noah's Ark, other species were never given the same status as humans. But Buddhism is focused on saving all life. That was why I came to the East. But it's obvious now that everywhere is the same. Yes, that's true. Everywhere people are the same. What can I do now? What is the purpose of my life? I have $4.5 billion and an international oil company. But what good is all that? Humans have surely invested more than $45 billion in saving species near extinction, and probably more than $450 billion has already been spent on saving the environment from degradation. But what's the use? Civilization continues to follow its path of destruction of all life on Earth, except humans. $4.5 is enough to build an aircraft carrier, but even if we build a thousand aircraft carriers, it would be impossible to stop the madness of humanity. Mike, this is what I wanted to tell you. Human civilization is no longer capable of improving by its own strength. Can there be any source of power outside of humanity? Even if God once existed, he died long ago. Yes, there are other powers. The sun had set and the loggers had left. 
the forest and the lowest hills were silent. Yeah now told Evans the whole story of Red Coast and Trisolaris. Evans listened quietly, and the lowest hills and the forest in dusk seemed to listen as well. When Yeah was finished, a bright moon rose from the east and cast speckled shadows on the forest floor. Evans said, I still can't believe what you just told me. It's too fantastic. But luckily, I have the resources to confirm this. If what you told me is true. He extended his hand and spoke the words that every new member of the future ETO would have to say upon joining. Let us be comrades. 28. The Second Red Coast Base Three more years passed. Evans seemed to have disappeared. Yeah didn't know if he really was somewhere in the world working to confirm her story, and had no idea how he would confirm it. Even though, by the scale of the universe, a gap of four light years was as close as touching, it was still a distance that was unimaginably far for fragile life. The two worlds were like the source and mouth of a river that crossed space. Any connections between them would be extremely attenuated. One winter, Ya received an invitation from a not very prominent university in Western Europe to be a visiting scholar for half a year. After she landed at Heathrow for her interview, a young man came to meet her. They didn't leave the airport, but instead turned back to the landing strip. There, he escorted her onto a helicopter. As the helicopter roared into the foggy air over England, time seemed to rewind, and Ya experienced déjà vu. Many years ago, when she first rode in a helicopter, her life was transformed. Where would fate bring her now? We're going to the second Red Coast base. The helicopter passed the coastline and continued toward the heart of the Atlantic. After half an hour, the helicopter descended toward a huge ship in the ocean. As soon as Yes saw the ship, she thought of Radar Peak. Only now did she realize that the shape of the peak did resemble a giant ship. The Atlantic appeared like the forest of the greater Kingon Mountains. But the thing that reminded her most of Red Coast Base was the huge parabolic antenna erected in the middle of the ship, which resembled a round sail. The ship was modified from a 60,000-ton oil tanker, like a floating steel island. Evans had built his base on a ship. Maybe it was so that it would always be at the best position for transmission and reception, or maybe it was to hide from detection. Later, she learned that the ship was called Judgment Day. Yas stepped off the helicopter and heard a familiar howl. It was caused by the giant antenna slicing through the wind over the sea. The sound again drew her thoughts to the past. On the broad deck below the antenna, about 2,000 people stood in a dense crowd. Evans walked up to her and solemnly said, Using the frequency and coordinates you provided, we received a message from Trisolaris. We've confirmed everything you told me. Yeah nodded calmly. The great Trisolaran fleet has already set sail. Their target is this solar system. And they will arrive in 450 years.
Pierre remained calm. Nothing could surprise her anymore. Evans pointed to the crowd behind him. You're looking at the first members of the Earth Trisolaris organization. Our ideal is to invite Trisolaran civilization to reform human civilization, to curb human madness and evil, so that the Earth can once again become a harmonious, prosperous, sinless world. More and more people identify with our ideal, and our organization is growing rapidly. We have members all over the world. What can I do? Yeah asked in a soft voice. You will become the commander-in-chief of the Earth Trisolaris movement. This is the wish of all ETO fighters. Yeah remained silent for a few seconds. Then she nodded slowly. I'll do my best. Evans raised a fist and shouted at the crowd, Eliminate human tyranny! Accompanied by the sound of crashing waves and the wind howling against the antenna, the ETO fighters shouted as one. The world belongs to Trisolaris! This was the day that the Earth Trisolaris movement formally began. 29. The Earth Trisolaris Movement the most surprising aspect of the Earth Trisolaris movement was that so many people had abandoned all hope in human civilization, hated and were willing to betray their own species, and even cherished as their highest ideal the elimination of the entire human race, including themselves and their children. The ETO was called an organization of spiritual nobles, most members came from the highly educated classes, and many were elites of the political and financial spheres. The ETO had once tried to develop membership among the common people, but these efforts all failed. The ETO concluded that the common people did not seem to have the comprehensive and deep understanding of the highly educated about the dark side of humanity. More importantly, because their thoughts were not as deeply influenced by modern science and philosophy, they still felt an overwhelming, instinctual identification with their own species. To betray the human race as a whole was unimaginable for them. But intellectual elites were different. Most of them had already begun to consider issues from a perspective outside the human race. Human civilization had finally given birth to a strong force of alienation. As astounding as the speed of the ETO's growth had been, the number of members did not tell the whole story of the ETO's strength. Because most of its members had high social status, they held a lot of power and influence. As commander-in-chief of the ETO rebels, Yao was only their spiritual leader. She did not participate in the details of the organization's operation, didn't know how the ETO grew so large, and wasn't even aware of the exact number of members. In order to grow fast, the organization operated semi-openly, but the governments of the world never paid much attention to the ETO. The ETO knew that they would be protected by the government's conservatism and lack of imagination. In those organs wielding the powers of the state, no one took the ETO's proclamations seriously, thinking that they were like other extremists who spewed nonsense. And because of its members' social status, governments always treated it carefully. 
By the time it was recognized as a threat, the rebels were already everywhere. It was only when the ETO began to develop an armed force that some national security organs began to notice it and realize how unusual it was. Consequently, it was only within the last two years that they had begun to attack the ETO effectively. The members of the ETO were not of a single mind. Within the organization were complicated factions and divisions of opinion. Mainly, they fell into two factions. The Adventist group was the purest, most fundamentalist strand of the ETO, comprised mainly of believers in Evans's pan-species communism. They had completely given up hope in human nature. This despair began with the mass extinctions of the Earth's species caused by modern civilization. Later, other Adventists based their hatred of the human race on other foundations, not limited to issues such as the environment or warfare. Some raised their hatred to very abstract philosophical levels. Unlike how they would be imagined later, most of them were realists and did not place too much hope in the alien civilization they served either. Their betrayal was based only on their despair and hatred of the human race. Mike Evans gave the Adventists their motto, We don't know what extraterrestrial civilization is like, but we know humanity. The Redemptionists didn't appear until long after the ETO's founding. This group's nature was a religious organization, and the members were believers in the Trisolaran faith. A civilization outside the human race would doubtlessly greatly attract the highly educated classes, and it was easy for them to develop many beautiful fantasies about such a civilization. The human race was a naive species, and the attraction posed by a more advanced alien civilization was almost irresistible. To make an imperfect analogy, human civilization was like a young, unworldly person walking alone across the desert of the universe, who has found out about the existence of a potential lover. Though the person could not see the potential lover's face or figure, the knowledge that the other person existed somewhere in the distance created lovely fantasies about the potential lover that spread like wildfire. Gradually, as fantasies about that distant civilization grew more and more elaborate, the Redemptionists developed spiritual feelings toward Trisolaran civilization. Alpha Centauri became Mount Olympus in space, the dwelling place of the gods. And so the Trisolaran religion, which really had nothing to do with religion on Trisolaris, was born. Unlike other human religions, they worshipped something that truly existed. Also, unlike other human religions, it was the Lord who was in crisis, and the duty of salvation fell on the shoulders of the believer. The main path of spreading Trisolaran culture to society was the three-body game. The ETO invested enormous effort to develop this massive piece of software. The initial goals were twofold. One, to proselytize the Trisolaran religion, and two, to allow the tentacles of the ETO to spread from the highly educated intelligentsia to the lower social strata and recruit younger ETO members from the middle and lower classes. Using a shell that drew elements from human society and history, the game explained the culture and history of Trisolaris, thus avoiding alienating beginners. 
Once a player had advanced to a certain level and had begun to appreciate Trisolaran civilization, the ETO would establish contact, examine the player's sympathies, and finally recruit those who passed the tests to be members of the ETO. But Three-Body didn't attract much notice, because the game required too much background knowledge and in-depth thinking, and most young players didn't have the patience or skill to discover the shocking truth beneath its apparently common surface. Those who were attracted by it were still mostly intellectuals. Most of those who became redemptionists got to know Trisolaran civilization through the Three-Body game, and so Three-Body could be said to be the cradle of the redemptionists. While the redemptionists developed religious feelings toward Trisolaran civilization, they were also not as extreme as the Adventists in their attitude toward human civilization. Their ultimate ideal was to save the Lord. In order to allow the Lord to continue to exist, they were willing to sacrifice the human world to some degree. But most of them believed that the ideal solution would be to find a way to allow the Lord to continue to live in the Trisolaris stellar system and avoid the invasion of the earth. Naively, they believed that solving the three-body problem would achieve this goal, saving both Trisolaris and the earth. Admittedly, perhaps this thought wasn't all that naive. Trisolaris civilization itself had thought so through many eons. The effort to solve the three-body problem was a thread that ran through several hundreds of cycles of Trisolaran civilization. Most redemptionists with some in-depth math and physics knowledge had attempted the three-body problem, and even after knowing that the problem was mathematically unsolvable as posed, the effort did not cease, because solving the three-body problem had become a religious ritual of their faith. Even though the redemptionists had many first-class physicists and mathematicians, research in this area never yielded any important results. It took someone like Wei Chang, a prodigy who had no connection to the ETO or the Trisolaran faith, to accidentally come up with a breakthrough in which the redemptionists placed much hope. The Adventists and the redemptionists were always in sharp conflict. The Adventists believed that the redemptionists were the greatest threat to the ETO. This view wasn't without reason. It was only through some redemptionists who had a sense of duty that the governments of the world gradually came to understand the shocking background of the ETO rebels. The two factions were of approximately equal strength within the organization, and the armed forces of both had developed to the point of starting a civil war. Yawinsia used her authority and reputation to try to patch over the division between the two, but the result was never ideal. As the ETO movement continued to develop, a third faction appeared, the Survivors. After confirming the existence of the alien invasion fleet, surviving that war became a most natural human desire. Of course, that war wouldn't occur for another 450 years and had nothing to do with those living today. But many people hoped that if humans did lose, at least their descendants who were alive in four and a half centuries could live on. Serving the Trisolaran invaders would clearly help with this goal. Compared to the other two factions, the survivors tended to come from the lower social classes, and most were from the East, and especially from China. Their numbers were still small, but they were growing rapidly. As Trisolaran culture continued to spread, they would become a force that could not be ignored in the future. 
the ETO members' alienation developed variously from the faults of human civilization itself, the yearning and adoration for a more advanced civilization, and the strong desire for one's descendants to survive that final war. These three powerful motives propelled the ETO movement to develop rapidly. By then, the extraterrestrial civilization was still in the depths of space, more than four light years away, separated from the human world by a long journey of four and a half centuries. The only thing they had sent to the Earth was a radio transmission. Bill Mathers's contact as symbol theory thus received chillingly perfect confirmation. You've been listening to The Three-Body Problem. Subscribe to this podcast so you can stay up to date on the newest installments of this enthralling sci-fi adventure. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Three-Body Problem, as well as the next two books in the series, wherever books or audiobooks are sold.